What's up, everybody? You're listening to Salah's Corner with the one and only Salah Muhammad. So on today's episode, I'm sitting with Nicholas O'Rourke. He is a candidate, uh, an independent candidate for city council in the city of Philadelphia. Um, we talked about his platform uh, a slight bit. We also talked about what got him into some of this civic responsibility. But we started our conversation on something that I really wanted to talk about. And it's the relationship between the citizens of Philadelphia and the police organization. And it is a tense relationship that has been ongoing for some time. Part of what is making some of this tense is things like what we've just seen recently, where these hundreds of officers were found saying some really toxic things on social media and only 13 being held accountable and fired. So we talk about that. We talk about how citizens can use their power to make the police accountable when it comes to contract negotiations uh, with the FOP and, and so forth, but also what it means to have a third-party system. I know that's something that he doesn't want me to say, but a third-party system in the city of Philadelphia. So I've had a lot of people coming to me asking me where I find the time and the space to make all of these podcasts happen. Well, I have to thank the folks at Rec Philly. They provide me the space, the equipment, and the networking capacity to make this take off. And it's not just for other podcasts. Other creative individuals use this space as well. We're talking musicians, photographers, anyone that considers themselves a creative individual. So if that's you, head over to Rec Philly. Visit them on Instagram. And if you find yourself wanting a membership, tell them Salah sent you. Nicholas, how are you today? I am well. All right. So... I, actually, I, this just popped into my mind. How are you? I'm, I'm fantastic. Okay. Thank you. Thank <laughs> yeah. you for asking. Yeah. <laughs> um, something just popped into my mind, actually. I um, Just recently, we, uh, we heard about, the in Philadelphia, the police officers who were saying some, some not-so-nice things. Racist. I'll say. Yes. Mm-hmm. Racist. Yeah. Call it what it is. Racist. Sexist. Racist things oh. on uh, Facebook. Just, I mean, just abhorrent things that just never should be said like just horrible racist sexist just just nasty stuff um and the commissioner finally came out and and um you know i I believe they're firing a bunch of them um i know some of them were suspended what's your what's your take on kind of the it was almost kind of a weighted response. Like there was, it took a while to kind of get there. What's your, what's your take on, on how that played out a little bit? Yeah. So, um, as you stated, yeah, we had a part of actually a larger, a nationwide kind of revealing, right. Um, from some folks who were able to monitor this and expose it at the right time of, I think we had 300 officers, mm-hmm. at least here in Philly. Yeah. That had been, Recorded, caught, saying racist, mm. sexist, homophobic, Islamophobic things on Facebook. And the original reaction from elected officials from the commissioner on down, the mayor on down, has been at least vocally, you know, absolute frustration, anger. Um, discussed right and so at least that checks out right so that's that's good at least you know we have folks that are in high places that will admit that that is disgusting 
what was a bit disenchanting for I think a lot of folks without understanding about how certain things work was that it went down from 300 to about 72 folks that I think they put on desk duty or something mm -hmm. along those lines. And now we are down to, I think, 13 right. that were fired. 300 to uh -huh. 70 something to 30. Yeah. That's crazy. And so anyone who's looking at that story might take that as if it was some sort of, you know, a capitulation, a, you know, a concession, a, a giving up, and not, not they, as if they didn't work hard enough. We, need, we needed some up. fall guys, basically. Yeah, yeah. and just kind of, that was what it was. But I think it's important um, that we understand exactly what happened because it's revealing about a, a larger issue that a lot of people in the city should be paying attention to here in Philadelphia, and probably not just here, across the country. The reason why it went down that way was because of the legalities that are at play when it comes to firing police officers. Mm. The last two police commissioners were very clear about their frustrations um, with this arbitration clause in police contracts, something that isn't talked about a lot. The police contracts that are negotiated across the country, including here in Philadelphia, oftentimes do not have, they of course have the best interests of the officers at heart, but they don't have really insight the people of Philadelphia that they're going to be policing. Mm. Oftentimes you have officers that are policing these streets that don't even live in Philadelphia. That, that arbitration clause is more in line to maintain the officer's having a job yeah. versus the integrity of the precisely of the organization. So if you were to fire an officer or you want to fire an officer because of all that goes into that, oftentimes these officers, and actually I think an article came out recently that said exactly that in its headline, mm. that officers have been fired, but don't be surprised if they get the jobs back. Mm. Oftentimes these officers will get fired and they get their jobs back within a month or two with back pay. Wow. And so you can see why that would be frustrating for a police commissioner who might not necessarily want to tick off his, his, his employees, his officers, but also if there is someone on the job that he wants to get rid of because they're poor at their policing, whatever the case may be, right. or she, whoever the commissioner may be, they, they really, there's not much that they can really do. Hmm. Uh, and so that's what we saw. We saw that um, they, they ultimately chiseled it down or got down to the ones that they believed they could actually fire and it stick as opposed to them getting caught up in a bunch of lawsuits and arguments and this and that that wouldn't allow them to actually have any real damage and then we lose the whole fight and so um i i am grateful to see that that some things have happened uh it has definitely ignited the conversation around um uh, even more of a conversation if we picked one back up around policing and how we do policing in the city and i believe and i hope uh, that is, it has also drawn people's attention to the importance of building power, organizing, in such a way that we can have, we, I say the people, can have an influence on these contract negotiations. Uh, because if there's going to be folks that are being paid and hired by the city of Philadelphia, um, that regardless of your union power with the FOP, this faux union that exists, um, regardless that I'm a union guy, I believe in that 100%. But regardless of that, you still work for the citizens of this city. Mm. 
And so uh, we have to operate with that understanding and build power enough so that way the next time these contract negotiations come around, which, mind you, will be right around the time of the 2020 election, mm. um, which is something that we paid attention to a couple of years back. We wanted to build power knowing that typically those negotiations happen behind closed doors. Right. You wake up one morning and there's a whole new contract for the, right. FOP, for the, for the police. And we knew that that might be overshadowed by a Trump election right. cycle. So uh, it's important, and I hope folks pay attention to it. It's and, and that speaks to a, a a large problem that people have with uh, the, the police force in Philadelphia. I mean, people, to put it frankly, people just don't trust right. the FOP. Right. And um, when we have years like we we're having these past few years, when the homicide rate is going through the roofs, I think the uh, last reports were we were on track for 350 something um, uh, homicides in the city. It's it's no wonder that people are concerned with the response from the police force mm-hmm. um, when when you have something like that. So what let's let's talk about what you said. Some of the 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 way we can organize and and put the public's interest first mm-hmm. into these uh, the con- contract negotiations that's going to take place uh, in 2020. How, uh, for random people that are trying to, to find some common ground within the, p- the police that interact in their neighborhood, for people that, uh, for like you and me, who have a concern with what's happening in the city, with have a concern that what's happening with the murder rate and also concerned with the amount of power that is possibly going to be given to police force to to control some of that. What what are some of the things we can do? Yeah, I, I am an advocate of not just activism, but of organizing. Right. Um, and so uh, there are organizations that exist. Philadelphia, I dare say, is an organizing city. Um, uh, activism is not a foreign concept here. Not at all. <laughs> not at all. And so you can throw a rock in any direction and find an organization uh, that is working on an issue um, that you might be interested in. And police brutality is, 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 is also one of those issues. The organization that I have organized with over the past several years uh, is an organization called Power. Hmm. Philadelphians Organized to Witness Empower and Rebuild. And within Power, Uh, or power is within the larger faith in action organizing network, which is the largest uh, faith-rooted organizing network uh, in the country, maybe in the world. Um, And it has a campaign, a national campaign attached to it called Live Free, uh, head up by a guy named Pastor Michael McBride out of Oakland, California, Mm -hmm. who is noted for his work around gun violence for many years uh, and recently has expanded, well, I shouldn't say recently, but in the last several years has expanded that to be gun violence and mass incarceration. But the conversation around gun violence isn't just intercommunal gun violence. Right. It's state-sanctioned violence, gun violence as well right. with the police. And so that brings up questions around policing. Um, he was there uh, in support of us when we, when we did a march on the FOP. Uh, back in 2016, I think it was, uh, and uh, was you know part of a larger conversation about how we organize folk around um, these police contracts and and things like that. Here in the city, uh, the person that's heading up that uh, live free work is um, are two clergy persons that I'm aware of named uh, Pastor Melanie DeBose of Evangel Chapel in North Philadelphia, as well as Dr. Mark Kelly Tyler, who is the the pastor of the historic Mother Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church. Uh, on 6th and Lombard. 
and they are actively having the conversation both around the um, uh, the racist officers and what is going on with them. In fact, I think there's a meeting this Saturday, this Sunday e afternoon or evening at Mother Bethel about that, as well as what can be done around police contracts. And so I encourage people as much as possible to check out an organization. Uh, I know that a lot of us are working folk here in this city. Many of us are, and time is not something that we have a lot of, but if you can spare some time, connect yourself with one of these organizations that has been doing really good work, like Power, like Live Free, uh, and learn about what's happening. And then once you were able to learn about these issues, like I said, most folks didn't even know about this contract negotiation or the arbitration clause and why right. it's so hard to fire officers. Uh, when you learn about it, uh, then you can actually do something about it. You can figure out what you can do about it. And so engage with a group like like Power, uh, Media Mobilizing Project. Um, uh, there are other, other organizations out there. There's a larger coalition uh, around decarceration, which touches on uh, policing as well. And, and, and plug in, yeah. You, you mentioned e-carceration. What, can we, uh, can you explain what that is? I meant decarceration, excuse ah, me. Yeah, yeah, we're just using that term, decarcerate. It uh, doesn't, it's actually weird. I use it so often, but it, it, I text it, yeah. and then every time I'm texting it, it has like a little red line that said it's a typo. Mm. I'm like, <laughs> I guess it's not actually a word. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, it, 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 it's, that's amazing that that's not a word. Yeah. Um, but the reason why I mentioned e-carceration, because I, I had a conversation with a, uh, a gentleman a few uh, weeks ago, mm -hmm. and we talked about um, probation, mm -hmm. right? Like that, that, that's, you know, he referred to that as e-carceration. Yeah. Yeah. And that you, it, it really uh, puts a, a lock hold on your life. That's right. Um, and not just the um, probation, but the bail system, mm -hmm. the, everything that, it, yeah. you know, you, you become a shackle to the system yeah. what, the second yeah. you get arrested, whether it's a minor or sometimes major offenses. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think that's, that's another element of just of, of this crime wave and um, interaction with just the justice system in general, yeah. um, not just in the city, not just in the state, but across the country. And that we, we look at crime um, as just crime and punishment, right? Sure. Crime and punishment, crime and punishment, but not addressing some of those systemic issues, whether it be poverty, whether it be mental health, whether it be issues with housing or, or finding jobs or, or re-entry mm -hmm. once, you, once you get back into, um, once you leave the prison system or the prison industrial complex. So yeah. it, it's, it, it's, it's like an endless cycle. Mm -hmm. You know, Philadelphia being one of the largest cities um, with such a high poverty rate, it's no wonder that, mm -hmm. you know, um, the homicide rate is kind of shooting through the roof because it, it, it's, it messes with the psyche yeah. of, of, of the citizens. What, um, what I know Mayor Jim Kenney has really changed his approach on, um, you know, small, small time offenses when it comes to like marijuana possession. Um, uh, there's been some talk about the bail reform. What's your, some of your take on how our current government in place in the city is handling just the criminal justice element of its uh, of its citizens yeah so we have here in philadelphia um arguably the most progressive district attorney in the country uh, yes we do we um power as in my organizing time with power and live free we we had uh, i think it was seventeen thousand 
live conversations with voters of color leading up to the, the DA race to hear from the community um, what a just district attorney looked like in their eyes and also to share some of our ideas about what we thought that was. And we like to think that that went a long way in electing someone who I am unashamed to say is uh, actually fulfilling um, the promises that he made on the campaign trail to to decarcerate and govern that way. And so I'm, I'm appreciative of his work. Um, obviously in good organizer, activist fashion, that does not mean you don't continue to hold him accountable. Um, and, and he has said to me, you know, that he wants that. Hmm. And so um, I, I, I appreciate him in that way. I, I do believe that, that Mayor Kenny is, um, for all intents and purposes, a progressive mayor and has lifted up um, um, some, you know, some, some, some progressive uh, and sh shown, I should say, some progressive shifts uh, in, in the way uh, that he is governing and also I would be remiss if I did not say that there was a major disappointment um, uh, in, 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 for many of us in the community when the mayor was elected because of how he campaigned, um, which was on a platform that included an explicit um, denouncing of stop and frisk practices in the city. And unfortunately, uh, we saw before 100 days lapsed into the mayor's first term, a walking back mm. of that explicit denouncement. And so to that end, there are some opportunities for uh, our mayor, who I do think, um, generally speaking, is doing a good job uh, to, to live up to those promises. And I, I think I would be less of an organizer, activist, and a prophetic minister if I did not continue to uphold um, uh, that, that particular issue and the importance of it. I recognize that uh, officers oftentimes feel as if, you know, we don't understand the, all, all, all that it takes to police and what needs to go into that. Uh, and, and I'm sure that that is being, in his, is being whispered into his ear uh, sure. about that. And so I hear that. I, I am not beyond understanding the complexities of governing. Um, but there is a there is a, a Latin inscription on the tomb of Richard Allen, who was the founder of the AME Church, buried in the basement of Mother Bethel, mm -hmm. um, that says, uh, "Vox Populi, Vox Dei," the voice of the people is the voice of God. Mm. And so, for me, if the people told you that they wanted to see an end to stop and frisk, if we have seen the lion's share of police departments across the country in cities even bigger than ours, having at least in word, at least in word, stopped this practice of stop and frisk, then certainly if you campaign on that promise and say that that's what you're going to do, uh, that, we, that, that you actually enact that. So I think that we have done, we've had some great advances. I think you mentioned um, uh, you know, incarceration. Yes, we have a DA that has uh, drastically cut back on the probation and parole that we've seen here. Uh, you know, basically keeping folks locked up even after they have been released, right. you know, still serving time even in their communities, uh, making it difficult for them to actually contribute to their communities and, you know, in communities that, as you have already stated, uh, are deeply impoverished. A fourth of our city's population lives in abject poverty. And so, uh, yeah, we have, we've, we are seeing some great advances, some great reforms. And there's some areas of growth. Um, you are a candidate for an independent candidate for a city council. Correct. I am. 
Um, first of all, when when is the um, the deadline uh, we can share with everyone to, to turn in signatures? Or, uh, uh, the deadline or the expectation is August 1st. So all independent candidates are turning in their, their petitions on the 1st of August. You, you, you support the mayor, um, who's a Democrat. What made you run as an independent? Great question. Um, so politics um, in the United States has defaulted for some time into a pendulum swing. Mm-hmm. This election cycle will vote Republican. Next election cycle, we'll vote Democrat. This election cycle, we'll vote Republican. Next election cycle, we'll vote Democrat. And never the twain shall meet. We just kind of keep going back and forth. And I think that there are a lot of people uh, across the country and specifically in the city of Philadelphia that if they haven't checked out at this point from politics entirely because of that kind of thing and not seeing any real changes happening and the same promises being made, then they're looking for something different. Hmm. They're looking something, looking for something that actually reeks of boldness. And for me, not against Democrats at all, um, I believe that there are some there's some pretty radical folk out there that have uh, clinched nominations and even won elected office. Um, running as Democrats, uh, but just being forthright with their platforms and with what they what they plan to do. And many have actually delivered on the promises. So I'm not against Democrats. And also, we do not have to continue to submit to this thing that has been exhausting us for so long, just the, the, this two-party system. When you talk to folks outside of the country that are coming here, there was a recent conference uh, here in Philadelphia, Netroots, and you, some folks who were progressive uh, who find themselves, and maybe not even progressive, folks who are just not from here, that will tell you uh, they find it extremely difficult how to fit in to American politics because of this, this binary that mm-hmm. we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, because where they're from, you have more options. Right in terms of how you know you want to identify politically and how you may want to vote. So because of the, the point I want to bring up here is that oftentimes if you are running for office, whether Republican or Democrat, because everything is lumped together in one of these two parties, there will have to be either some concessions that you have to make in order to run with them or just certain things that you may not be able to say or things you might be forced to say, mm. um, which to me can be read as a compromise of integrity. And so what myself and my, my running mate, Kendra Brooks, um, are doing, what we're doing is running as independents with the backing of the Working Families Party. We're running as Working Families Party candidates, which is a political party here on the East Coast. Really, it's national, but it has a lot of strength here on the East, Northeast area. It does. That advocates for the very issues and on the very principles that both Kendra and I have been organizing out of and for for many years. You talked about poverty, eliminating that. We talked about mass incarceration, moving to decarceration. We talked about, you know, we haven't talked about, you know, issues around housing, affordable housing. These are all things that they're not new to. Uh, The Working Families Party has been forthright about that, loud about it, and has really, in my opinion, become 
another, I don't want to say um, a third party because I think that continues to kind of cheapen what they are, but it becomes another option that people can look to when it comes to identifying persons that can run. So for me, running with the Working Families Party allows me to maintain my integrity. Um, and and if and if that's too strong of too strong of, of, of wording, then it at least allows me not to be restricted in the way that I run. I can run a much more robust campaign, uh, detailed campaign of advocating for the many issues that we advocate for, running with the Working Families Party that I I am not sure I w- would be able to do as a Democrat. You you you. I find that fascinating because I think you're you're right when it comes to the alliances within the party. And at cer- at some point, it becomes the message of the party or the message of you right. as an individual right. compromising your own morals and right. your own set of values. Mm-hmm. Um, those and think the way things used to work was you could have your own set of morals and mm-hmm. you could stand on your own set of principles sure. without having to compromise yourself for party. Like sure. You didn't have to die for the party. Right. Um, where now it's, it's, it's kind of like if you don't support the party and there, that's, there are elements of this within the democratic party, not just in Philadelphia, but across the country. Um, but it's more prevalent within the Republican party, I would say. Um, but it's, it's just something that is made the entire system of governance toxic um, and like you said, it does make people want to tune out. I mean, Philadelphia has been largely a democratic city for the better part of my life. Um, yet at the same time, we're still dealing with issues. Of, and, and, and the reason why I say that is because the Democratic Party is known to be the, the party, the, the majority party that's focused on people that look like me, people that are black, people that come from disenfranchised communities, people that are immigrants the Democratic Party largely has been the party backing that community. Meanwhile, Philadelphia is sitting at 26% poverty. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, wait a minute. We keep giving you guys the keys to the damn city. Yeah. And what's, what's, what's happening? Y'all, yeah. supposed to, y'all supposed to have us. Y'all yeah. supposed to have our back. And it's just, it's just not happening. Yep. So I, I, I think you speak, speak a, some truth to a, what a lot of people have been feeling for a very long time. But... What do you say to those who say, you know, two-party system is kind of the way it is. It's the way it works. It's the way that's useful. It's the way to power. It's the way to influence. Um, what do you say to, the, to those individuals who say, nah, the two-party system is still the best way to go? Well, I would say I, it's that way because we say so. Hmm. The parties are made up of money and people and where we place our money and where we lend our support is where the power will be. Mm. And we have had, I feel like the, the conversation around, and I, 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 I'm going to say this, um, though I want to stop using it, but the conversation around third parties, third parties, yeah. um, has been going on for some time and people don't necessarily take it seriously, um, for an array of reasons. And also, We complain, there's a lot of complaints that happen, uh, that that come up as a result of our addiction to a two-party system. It is not to suggest, again, that there is nothing uh, redemptive about 
the Democratic Party or whatever your party of choice may be. I'm not suggesting that. You can, I'm sure many folks align, right, um, that have, I, Larry Krasner is a Democrat. Right. Chris Rabb, who is a, uh, a state rep in the Northwest here in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. very progressive man, uh, is a Democrat and a ward leader, I believe. Um, yes, yes. You, you, so it, it is possible to be that. And also, these are folks who have had the backing of, of, of parties like the Working Families Party, um, uh, who uh, oftentimes parties like the Working Families Party are still sought out by presidential candidates. There are several presidential candidates right now that are actively seeking the endorsement of the Working Families Party because they recognize the kind of power culturally uh, that the WFP wields yields. And so um, I would ask us, as much as we are being imaginative about how we can govern in the U.S. and what kind of policies that we can place forward, as imaginative as I'm hearing us become and, and be more forthright, um, we can, that doesn't have to just stop with policy. It can also start with our politics as well. Mm. We can be much more creative than we have been. We can move beyond where we have been. It just is a matter of choice. Um, it's not as if uh, when you say, uh, oh, you know, <laughs> the, the way to power is the two-party system, as if, as you have stated, we are actually being served in the rate that we want to right, be right. or getting the things that we want from this two-party system. We always find ourselves you know, capitulating, right? The whole city is a Democrat town with the exception of one little speck up in the Northeast. And yet... Um, most folks are very frustrated and have been for a long time, right, uh, with what we have seen. Uh, during the move bombing, we yeah. had uh, a black Democratic mayor, I believe. Yeah. Right? And we had a huge bombing of a entire street. Basically. Exactly. And that was over 30 years ago. Yeah. And so <laughs> for some time, this has been it. And I think that we have to be much more imaginative. I would also push back and say um, I'm seeing more and more folks actually be that. I'm hearing less complaint about the two-party system. Uh, typically, I hear this, though, the, the encouragement, the excitement around it in communities of color and disenfranchised communities, and where I'm finding that most folks are um, willing to think beyond the two-party system. Faith is a, uh, seems to be a large part of what drives what you do. Um, you've spoken to that a few different times throughout our conversation. What is that what propelled you into this life of um, public service? What propelled me into the life of public service was the way I was raised. Mm-hmm. My mother and my father both came from proud black families. My father's mother was a professor of music at Central State University. In fact, she was taught Leotine Price, great vocalist, um, uh, voice prior to her going off to, to receive her master's and become the great vocalist that she became. Mm-hmm. Um, was good friends with Paul Robeson, who wow. has a house wow. in West Philadelphia. Yeah. Don't live too far from that. Um, and so my grandfather, my, my, my father's father, uh, was a small business owner, owned a motel, um, a dry cleaner, a restaurant called The Old Mill in Cedarville, Ohio. Um, and helped organize black folks around the Democratic Party at that time uh, when they started kind of flipping from the Republicans to the Democrats in the early right. part of the century. Right, mm-hmm. uh, And so um, they come from, he comes from this, this, this educated family that took pride in um, almost like a Booker T. Washington style of blackness. Um, my mother, on the other hand, 
was much more Dubois. And so uh, she was the light-skinned child of um, four uh, dark-skinned kids mm. in the 60s. Mm. I tend to think that the light-skinned kids that grew up at that time felt like they had more to prove or something. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, it, it, was, it, was, it was just a different time. Yeah, different absolutely. Different time, for sure. You know, yeah. Huey was a was an awfully proud black man with his light skin <laughs> Not to play in the colorism, yeah. I'm just, it's a joke. I, the, the idea though uh, being, or the point being that my mother uh, raised my brother and I to be radicals. My, my, she comes from a, a blue collar household. My, mm. Her mother was a domestic. She cleaned rich uh, folks' houses for a living. Many of them we are still family friends with to this day. My grandfather was a mechanic. And so she had us reading the autobiography of Malcolm X, mm-hmm. had us reading Nathan McCall's uh, uh, Makes Me Want to Holler, Story of a Black Man Growing yeah. Up in America. Um, John Means Hello. I was learning Swahili. That was the coffee table book, right? Mm-hmm. So that understanding of what it meant to be black and proud, both respectable but yet radical, coming from both sides of my family, informed what it meant and how I'm supposed to show up in society, my brother and I both. Um, and so that was the foundation for me. My mother was active. She was a CWA rep, um, has been a union person for some time. Um, both my, and my father as well, um, um, being a part of a working person was, was a, um, electrician, a truck driver and a janitor before he retired. My mother, uh, telephone operator now drives buses. Um, and so, yeah, the importance of advocating for who we are and those of us who are experiencing oppression and suffering and less than what we deserve in society was something that was instilled in us early on. Mm. So that's that. But also my mother, really both sides of the family, but I I really have to contribute to my mother's um, faith um, through the 90s when she was dealing with a lot of different things and um, uh, began to really shape and mold the way that I am today. We started going, my mother through a lot of stresses and things like that during the 90s, used to take my brother and I to different conferences and camp meetings um, as her faith became more pronounced uh, to help her get through. Uh, and so that's how I started getting involved in church. I grew up that way, but it got it more pronounced in the 90s. But it was when I was at Central State University, um, I met my best friend at the time who was going to seminary across the street at Payne Theological Seminary, another AM institution, which mm-hmm. is why I keep referencing them often. The professors there, while he was going there, would allow me to sit in on intensives um, uh, on their Saturdays or whatever to learn about them. And that's where I came in contact with what's known as the social gospel. Um, you know, I started hearing names like Gustav Gutierrez and James Cone and Walter Rauschenbosch and all of these folk uh, that helped me to understand the Christian faith not as something that was for prosperity and private piety, but something that was to be used as a public proclamation for the emancipation of God's people, that mm. God had a preferential treatment for the poor, that that the concept of Jesus, whether you believe in him literally or not, the story is of a deity enfleshing itself to come along and scream alongside humanity and liberate it from its suffering, mm. and that we are called to be like that particular person. And so... That definitely became the context when I understood it blew my mind, right? Um, I got married um, uh, to a woman who grew up and to this day still practices Islam, Mm -hmm. a practicing Muslim. Uh, And so I was with her uh, on uh, Wednesday morning 
uh, I guess November the 6th or whatever day it was, 2016, when mm-hmm. she woke up to uh, a Donald, President Donald Trump. And I saw her weep from her soul uh, that as a black woman Muslim in America, she had been essentially utterly disrespected and rejected uh, by folks that may have been close to her, folks that she works with. And so, yeah, my faith speaks to all of that. Mm. I feel called to address that suffering and that surrounding. And so, yeah, it is definitely central to the why I do what I do and and how I go about doing it. That that um, and that date was. Um uh, 11 9 I'll never forget because it's, it's 9 11 back I'm trying to forget uh, <laughs> I know we all are we all are trying to get, forget yeah. but um yeah my my, my household was uh, very similar um mm-hmm. you know I have uh, three girls that I live with my wife and, and two stepdaughters and you know I mean I stayed up to watch the entire election results because as did I. I'm just a junkie me too um, my wife stayed up with me as well and you know daughter was crying and mm-hmm. and and I went to work and people were crying and it's it's yeah. You know, the era we in is real. It's very reminiscent of uh, what you read, because obviously I wasn't alive in the 60s, but it is very reminiscent of mm-hmm. a lot of things from that era. Yeah. Um, you know, the old saying is history doesn't repeat itself, but it, it uh, sure does rhyme. Yes, so right. yep. <laughs> we are in a in a nightmare of a rhyme right now. Mm-hmm. Um, Nicholas, this has been a, a good conversation. Um, good luck to you on your campaign. Thank you, sir. Um, I think we were able to highlight a number of different things, but I, I really w- enjoyed uh us getting to know you and um, understanding what you stand for. Uh, but my last question before you go that I ask everyone is what's your most favorite thing in the world right now? My most favorite thing in the world right now? Yes. Wow. I stump everyone. Wow. That's a great question. Uh, <laughs> Try to end it on a positive note. Well, the immediate thing I want to say is my wife. Uh, that's good enough. There's a line in... Um, searching for a friend for the end of the world. I think is the name of the film. It moves me when I think about it. Um, where it's this guy who ultimately is trying to find a friend. The world is coming to an oh, end. Oh, I love that movie. It's with um, oh Jesus Christ, what's his name? I I, I can picture the two people. He was on the office. He was in the office. Yeah, yeah. I, I just know him as Michael Scott. Honestly. Him. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the at the end of the at the end of the film, he 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 looks at Penny and. Yeah. Um, and says to her, as the world is literally coming to an end, you're my favorite thing. Mm. Yeah. You're my favorite thing. And it moved me to tears then. And when you asked me what my favorite thing in the world is, I told my wife this when we got married. That is my favorite thing. She is. Oh. She is. That's uh, ended on a very good and positive note. Thank you, Nicholas. It was a pleasure. Thank um, you. Hope you'll come back. Please have me. It's an honor. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to give a big thanks to Nicholas for uh, sitting with me on the podcast today. Uh, Make sure you guys are getting out there and voting. Um, If you see him out there gathering signatures, uh, put your name down if you gravitate towards his message. And and just for uh, clarification, the movie he was referencing was uh, Seeking a Friend for the End of the World, starring Keira Knightley and Steve Carell. Real funny movie, um, really emotional at the same time. Check it out highly recommend it um and again always thank you for tuning in make sure you rate and subscribe on apple podcasts uh, or whatever uh platform you're listening to this on email me all your questions at realtalk at salascorner.com check out my latest blog post at salascorner.com 
Salas Corner is recorded out of Rec Philly, is produced by producer extraordinaire Brie Wilson, and features music by Prod by Delgado. For more of my work, visit me at salascorner.com. And until next time, peace, y'all.